going to start by making a pretty bold statement that there is an indictment on our human approach which prioritizes our present experience. Let me describe what I mean by that. Back at home, somewhere, uh, it's kind of disappeared since we moved, but, but there is a book somewhere, which is uh, a book called The Western Front Then and Now. Uh, and in the inside cover, there's a map of the uh, First World War, Western Front line of the, uh, of the battle, uh, and, and dots in ink where a relative had, had actually been stationed. And then following on in the book, this amazing set of pictures, which is the Western Front by location at the time of the battle during the First World War, and then another photograph, which was the Western Front as it was by then, which was probably sometime in the, I guess, the 1920s where it had pretty much been restored, where it was now beautiful farmland, where everything had been resolved. Little did the photographers know, I guess, that within uh, probably a decade or so, all of that would be turned around again. But one of the things that I find is a huge challenge with us as people is we, increasingly depending on how far back in time an event is, the more we distance ourselves from the horror and the more we find it interesting. We find uh, the Western Front now an interesting historical event. And yet there was horrific human suffering during that particular period of time. I guess if we are really into that kind of historical study, there are moments when we read some of the horrors and it touches us. But let me take you further and further back in time. Let me take you maybe to some of the Roman conquests in the first and second century, or the first century, one BC. The horrors of those experiences certainly don't touch us in the way that more recent events touch us. The absolute horror that is going on in Europe right at this moment in time in Ukraine is potent in our minds. We are moved, and quite rightly, by the scenes. Yet sadly, tragically, those very events in 20, 30, 50, 100 years will drift into the category of historically interesting. Why is that? Why do we do that? I think it's because we prioritize our current experience as being more significant, more superior to the past, probably, probably because it is what we can touch and feel and taste and smell and hear today right now. We get it now. We can see it. We are we are beings of the present. The Easter story demands, it demands that we take ourselves back in time to one event in history 
And I guess just like all of those other historical events, which kind of diminish in significance, the Easter story for us can become a thing of interest, a thing of historical wonder. I hope what we are able to do today is pull the Easter story back from the brink through the life and experience of this woman, Mary. Let's walk alongside Mary. Let's see her experience of that first Easter. And let's see why the Easter story demands that a historical event is as significant for us now as it was right back then. Let's have a look, shall we, at how the story unfolds. We see in the first verse of chapter 20, early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. We read in one of the other, um, one of the other gospel accounts, she went with others, but John has decided in the way that he recounts this story to, to, to hone in on, on Mary Magdalene. Just follow, trace this one person through the story. That's what I find fascinating about the way that the gospel writers uh, express this story in different ways. They decide maybe to look at it in broader terms, maybe to look at an individual. John chooses Mary and follows the story through from Mary. Let's put it into context because he, he has already identified Mary previously as being somebody who he wants to follow through. In chapter 19, the previous chapter, and verse 25, we read this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Three Marys and a sister. Four women that John has decided to identify. Now, I just want to throw it in there for your thinking. Maybe if you're coming to terms with this idea of the message of the Bible um, and you might be wrapped up in, in the kind of way that, understandably in some ways, the Bible has been used inappropriately and unhelpfully um, to, to create certain patterns of power and structure. Let me just say this one thing and let it play around in your mind. Not the writer John, but Jesus chooses to use Mary, a woman who would not, whose testimony would not be allowed in a court of the day as one of the key witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what the Bible describes in this moment in time. That is culturally subversive for the day and massively interesting, at the very least, fascinating, challenging for us today. He chooses Mary as his golden thread to piece through the story of the resurrection of Jesus. But the context, as we've seen from the previous chapter, is Mary has witnessed firsthand the horrific death of Jesus. She has seen him as he is mocked, abused, 
as he is offered drinks, one drink that he's offered right at his death is, if you like, a, a kind of a, a pick-me-up. Jesus is given a pick-me-up drink to try to extend his life because there is the hope that he might do something miraculous. But he drinks that pick-me-up drink and then he gives his life. Mary has witnessed all of those incredible events. Jesus laying down his life at that moment in time. And what we find now is Mary is, without doubt, broken. Look at verse 2 of our chapter. When she finds that the tomb is open, what does she do? She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved and said, which is the writer John. Uh, John doesn't identify himself. He doesn't say, uh, Mary came running to Peter and myself. He says, the one that Jesus loved. And we find out, we, we deduce really, I guess, that it is John who's speaking of himself here. He's, he's writing his first hand account of the experience and said they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. There's Mary's assumption. She is broken. Jesus has been taken as far as she is concerned. So those disciples turn, run to the tomb. The younger disciples arrives, disciple arrives first. Peter arrives later. They go into the tomb. But we see that Mary, in verse 11, stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. They've gone, gone the disciples now. I think what John is trying to help us to see is the utter brokenness of Mary's experience at this moment in time. So poignant. It... He wants, us to, he wants us to sit alongside Mary and for us to, if you like, suffer the loss alongside Mary. He wants us to feel the pain alongside Mary. He wants us to recognize that human experience that the death of somebody that we dearly love is the most powerful crushing experience that could be imagined. That's what John is trying to get us to do, is to, to enter into the utter loss and hopelessness of the situation. It's magnified, actually. It's magnified in the mind of Mary beyond probably anything that we could understand in our culture, because why... The reason that Mary was there is because she was there to treat the body of Jesus with the ritual respect that was normal for the day. And she's not able to do that. It's as though in her mind, Jesus' body has been put into the tomb, but it's now being treated as discarded rubbish. She's not able to do what she knows she wants to do to respect the one that she loves. Do you see the impact that Mary is going through? The utter brokenness. 
I think she moves from, we've seen the context, we've seen the brokenness. I think John really pushes the point because a little bit further on, in verse 13 and 14, we see desperation. Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. I I don't know. I can't answer why she didn't know it was Jesus. And I think if we try to speculate... We can end up in all sorts of strange places, but there could be some really obvious ways. (laughs) You do not expect Jesus to be risen and speaking to you behind you, do you? And in utter, desperate brokenness, with tear-filled eyes, she isn't going to concentrate on the person behind her. I think that's possibly... What John is trying to say. He's trying to say the expectation for Mary was zero. That it would be Jesus who was standing behind him, behind her. Zero expectation that it would be Jesus asking why she is distressed. And yet Mary turns around and she says in desperation, I don't know where they've put him. They've taken him away. I am lost. I am desperate. And there is, <laughs> there is this turning point in the life of Mary because Jesus in the verse 16 says to her, Mary. She turned toward him. I, I guess she looked in a fresh way now. She blinked her eyes. She didn't look with that distracted desperation. She had heard her name. And and maybe the tone of voice was a tone that she knew. And she turned and she saw Jesus. And she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I find that so instructive in terms of the word that Mary chose to use. Incredibly important. Dan Brown, who is repeating a Gnostic idea that there was a relationship between Jesus and Mary, which is kind of, you know, this new, well, it's, Fairly old now, isn't it? The Dan Brown stories. But this idea that there was a relationship between Jesus and Mary, as though this is some sort of groundbreaking news. Um, Dan, you're about 2,000 years old. That, that was not new. It was suggested back there, but John chooses to indicate a relationship between Mary and Jesus, which is significantly different (laughs) to the suggested indication that we find in the Gnostic thinking and right the way through to 20th century novel writing. Teacher. 
You are my teacher. I, I bow before my teacher. She didn't turn around and say, my love. She said, my teacher. So we've seen the context. We've seen the brokenness. We've seen the desperation. And now we see the transformation. So what does this have to say to us in 21st century West Yorkshire or wherever you're listening or watching? What has it got to say to us today? I think it completely transforms our thinking if we look into the, into the claims of this story. And I think there are three things that I just want to pull out for us to consider on this Easter Sunday. The first is this. It redefines our understanding of life. That's the first thing I want to say. It redefines our understanding of life. Central to the Easter story is this. Against, against all of our expectation, against all of our human intuition, and yet somewhere creeping inside of our awareness, creeping inside of our soul, our heart, our, our deep desire, is that this life is not everything. And yet we live like this life is everything. That's why we prioritize in our thinking the horrors of today and reduce the horrors of the past to being historical footnotes. Because of the horrors of the past are so far away and this life now is what it's all about. But if Jesus rose again, if Jesus, who died on a cross, who was buried, who Mary saw, was without doubt dead, and she went in brokenness and sees him alive, it changes completely our understanding of what exists. What exists according to the claim of the Easter story, is that this that we see is not everything. That there is life beyond life. Beyond death there is life. There is life, there is death, and there is life. That transforms everything. I mean, I mean everything. Everything changes if that is true. Everything. Our attitudes towards literally everything in our human experience is transformed. We, 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 we can kind of we can kind of get little tiny glimpses. There is one of the most beautiful little videos of transformation that, that I saw a few months ago. It's of, it's of a, a little baby who couldn't hear at birth and has, I think it was probably cochlear implants or some other treatment. And here's his mother's voice for the first time. Uh, it, it, it kind of, it's just amazingly moving. <laughs> that kind of, initially, there is a look of kind of terror 
just briefly, this new experience as they turn the implant on. And then there is this kind of glow and smile that breaks out on this little face. In that moment, we see, a, we see such a transformation. Life changes beyond recognition in that moment. But it is, it is tiny. It is tiny compared to the claim that we see in this account here. That if Jesus died and rose again, and that there is life beyond this death that we will all experience... We can, say, we can say to those who look at Jesus, Jesus rose, I believe, because of his faith in his Father and the work of God and the power of God breaking out in the life of Jesus. We can say, by faith in Jesus, the worst death that you can possibly experience that you or I might face it's not the end. It is not the end. It is a temporary moment. Do you know, I, I'm human. I, 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 I fear the experience of death. I, 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 don't, I just don't think that... Maybe you don't. And I, I think you are an incredibly blessed person if you don't fear the experience of death. I fear the experience of death because it's just this great unknown. I don't know what it means in terms of pain or whatever it might mean and, and fear and, and all of those kind of things. But I was chatting with my, a friend, I think it was my brother-in-law, years ago. He said, well, the thing is, the only, the only pain that you really think about after the dentist, apart from the pain while you're going through it, is the memory. <laughs> you know, you fear the dentist in the future because you remember the past. But if you are raised from the dead after dying, with the assurance that you will never experience that again, it transforms the potential for us to look at the possibility of death. We can look at death and we can say, alongside Paul, death, where is your stink? You know, your sting was that you could strip me. And now you can't. Because I will be reclothed. Isn't that beautiful? That's what this resurrection moment does. It redefines our understanding of life. The second thing it does is it creates relational certainty creates relational certainty. Don't know, yeah, there'll be a few who would probably have been my chemical romance fans back in the day. Um, I, was a, I was a kind of way too old fan of my chemical romance, kind of vicariously through kids who were playing it. Um, but you know what, there's some incredibly poignant lyrics they wrote a song called Cancer. I think it was um, biographical. I think it was talking about the loss of somebody that they loved. Incredibly powerful. And one of the lines is this. 
the greatest thing I fear is losing you. <laughs> That's what Mary had experienced. That was the brokenness. That was the despair that no matter what we do in life, no matter what we do, no matter how much protection we put in against this possibility, our relationships are finally stripped, aren't they? They are. Because this, this awful intrusion into life called death breaks in. That's what Mary experienced. That's what John is desperate for us to sit alongside Mary and say, look at it. <laughs> look at it before you might have to face it. Look at it alongside Mary. But this is the thing. Jesus and his relationship with Mary shows us that that relationship is certain. It's certain. It's not broken. It's certain. Because he, raised, he was raised from the dead. And the relationship that existed before death is the relationship that exists after death. His relationship with Mary. I think that is, that's just incredible. That it is not broken. And we say, well, okay. how, how, what does that mean for us? I mean, Mary had that relationship with Jesus. She had that. Can we have that? Can we have a relationship that is not broken? I believe that Jesus gives a very, very clear first step in the assurance that we can have that in the words that he used with Mary. Look at verse 17. He says something really surprising. You would, you would you'd be surprised at what, at what Jesus says at this moment in time. Mary has experienced the resurrection of Jesus. She's seen him. And all of her human impulse is now to, to not let that go again. <laughs> I don't want that to go again. I've lost it once and I don't want to lose it again. And what does Jesus say to Mary in verse 17? Do not hold on to me. <laughs> it seems so unfair. Because it, it seems to speak so against what you would expect Mary to want to do. She, of course she wants to hold on to Jesus. But there's a reason. There's a reason why Jesus says, don't hold on to me. He says, do not hold on to me for... Whenever you read for, ask what it's there for. It's there to tell us the reason. He says, for I have not ascended to the Father. I think he's saying this to Mary. He's saying, look... Don't hold on to me now in this state, in this condition, as a resurrected body. Don't hold on to me now like this, because I'm going to be in a better place where it's a much better place to hold on to me. Hold on to me when I'm ascended. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, don't hold on to me in this temporary presence. Hold on to me in my eternal presence. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. There's a time, Jesus is saying, to hold on to me. And it's not yet. He's saying, because the work that I'm doing is not yet completed. I know that Jesus says, when he dies on the cross, Tatalasti, it is finished. But the work of Jesus was not completed truly until he returned to heaven. Because that's when we can hold on to him. And in fact, his work is not completed in his ascension either. It's completed when he returns again. That's the completed work of Jesus. So there's kind of like, there's like stepping stones in the completed work of Jesus. He's completed it when he dies on the cross. Step one. Step two is resurrection. But don't hold on to me yet. Step three is ascending into heaven. And hold on to me temporarily like that. Because there's a way to hold on to me eternally. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 8. These are some of my, I, I, you'll hear me, I've turned to this verse so often. Because it's some, some of the most comforting verses, I think, for me. Romans chapter 8, 38 and 39. This is what holding on to Jesus looks like. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus the Lord. And yet Jesus is saying to Mary, don't, don't hold on to me. Why? Because there's another greater me. There's a greater knowledge of me in the ascended Christ. And then you hold on to me then. And at the times when you feel as if your fingers are slipping and you know that your handhold has lost its grip, Paul says, I'll still have hold of you. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he says there? He says, neither the present nor the future. <laughs> Nothing that's going to happen can separate us from the love of Jesus. Nothing that is going on right now can separate us from the love of Jesus. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus creates relational certainty. Third one, and the final one. The resurrection of Jesus, and I think perhaps this is the most practically useful outcome of what we're looking at this afternoon. The resurrection of Jesus that we see in Mary creates this. It encourages emotional robustness. It encourages emotional robustness. I, I absolutely love 
that we have broken through the kind of false, stoical behavior that hid the reality of our hearts. That we would be that kind of British stiff upper lip and the expectation that if we didn't do that, then we should learn to do the British stiff upper lip. And we would be robust and solid and strong and stoical and be able to move on from one experience to the other, to the other as if on the face of it, it never touched us. I'm so glad that we have broken away from that. But you know, the problem with where we now are is I don't actually see anything that satisfactorily gives us a solid foundation to be open. I don't see anything that gives us an absolute certainty. We open our hearts, we open our experiences, and that is cathartic. That is so helpful. And it can take us on a certain few steps. But I want something really, really solid. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus does. It gives us an absolute solidity that nothing that we, nothing that we experience can crush us. That we can move forward from anything. That's what the resurrection of Jesus tells us. We can move forward with any experience in our past. We can move forward. Not because we've created some sort of inner strength. Because the reality is that we'll let ourselves down if, if we believe that our inner strength is the only thing that is going to give us the ability to move forward. But we know that the strength is outside of us in Him who lives now. That's the resurrection of Jesus. And here's the thing. This is what makes the horror of 2,000 years ago on a cross relevant for us today. It's as real now as then. But it makes everything else of the horrors of the history of this world as real now as then. Because Jesus sees it all. But we can move forward. Why? I think Mary says it in verse 18. How, how can we do this? How can we create emotional robustness? I have seen the Lord. That's what makes it robust for Mary. That is what can make it robust for us. That is the turning point. That is the foundation. That becomes her mantra for every day. I've seen the Lord. I know what that means. This, I trust, can be for all of us after this past few years. The steps into a solid, secure, hope-filled, emotionally more stable, more confident, more secure 
view of the future that nothing that might happen is going to break into the relationship that we might have in Jesus. I trust that us walking alongside Mary for a few minutes has given us that glimpse that we have seen the risen, glorified Savior that has been our hope, our life, and our friend.